Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Earlier this week, I was interviewing somebody for my other job over at... Uh, Leighton Broadcasting, Candlewicks Radio. And I was talking to a guy who uh, has a wonderful story of adoption and uh, what he went through to find his birth parents and the processes that he used to do that. And it got me thinking on my way home after doing that interview that I- I've never really spent a lot of time looking into my genealogy. I know my my you know my folks came from half my mom's side of the family came over from Germany and France and my dad's side of the family obviously came over from India and I just didn't know much about it and I thought you know I would, it was a cool story talking to Steve and kind of learning about his experience I thought I would kind of like to do that too and of course the problem is and the thing that has always kept me out of doing any sort of genealogical research and or documentation is it's the kind of thing that if you're going to do it once, you want to do it right. Because if you do it right the first time, you'll never have to do it again. Turns out genealogy doesn't change. Turns out once you have all that information documented, it's good for life. And so I began to do some research on software platforms and various different services that I could use to try to do this. Now, obviously for me, cloud services were out. I didn't want to use like Ancestry.com, didn't want to build my tree on uh, you know 23andMe, stuff like that. I wanted to have local data that I could I could feel free to put all of the information, all of the things that I could find. And I also wanted a way to be able to hand that down to my kids and so that they have that option. So the first thing I came up with was I just started a very basic uh, Inkscape document and uh, found a template for a t- family tree and started following it. And that, that worked for about the first day. Uh, as I was kind of outlining my immediate family and, and so on and so forth, and it quickly became untenable because all of a sudden I went to add, you know, my dad's, you know, dad's side of the family. And all of a sudden there's like this entire massive family tree that I have to then merge into my family tree. And it's just, I'm, I'm selecting all these things and trying to move it across. It's just not working. So I decided I need something better. So I start to research open source tools for doing family trees and genealogy research. And I came across a program called Gramps. And uh, I just wanted to make a mention of it here on the program because if, if you've not done this, if you've not sat down with your kids and, uh, and some of your other relatives and fleshed out your family tree and your, your genealogy, let me tell you, it is the most fun you'll have uh, than any other activity. I mean, it is such a great activity to do with some, somebody else and the ability to bond and connect with other people has been fantastic. And so the relationships that I've been able to build with my, my, my kids and people that I found out I was related to halfway across the world and being able to reach out with them and connect with them all through this software called Gramps is just, it's fantastic. So Gramps is a genealogical research and analysis management tool uh, that was put together 
by people who do this professionally. And so it's a tool that was written for people. Of course, it's open source, runs on Linux. It's a tool that was written by genealogists for the purpose of genealogical research. And it's available in the repo. So just sudo apt install uh, gramps, G-R-A-M-P-S. And you open it up. At first, I was a little taken aback. I expected to be able to add myself and then start adding other people. And I found it, I found the interface not terribly intuitive to, to navigate at first. And having used it for the last week now, I have come to understand that the reason for that is, is because it's just a very, very, very powerful piece of software. And so, uh, I, again, I just wanted to take a moment and kind of walk through this because it, it almost kind of turned me off to it. And, and once you dig into it and realize the power of this thing, it's really fantastic. So to start, you know, you'll get a dashboard, which is almost useless if you haven't entered any information, so you can ignore that. Um, but if you click into the people's tab, now you can start adding people. And my temptation and my mistake was to first add a bunch of people and then I tried to connect them all. And it turns out, I mean, you can do it that way, um, but it's not the best way to do it. Uh, the best thing to do is start with one person. And so maybe start with yourself, create yourself and then single click on yourself and click on the relationships tab. And what that will do is open whatever the selected person is up in the relationships tab. The relationships tab then allows you to enter a bunch of other information. So you can enter the, that person's father, that person's mother. You can enter the siblings if they have it. If that person has gotten married, you can enter their spouse. Um, you can enter the kids that that person had with that spouse. And again, being not what I perceive to not be very intuitive, if you want to create the parents, there's no way to just, you know, add the parents. What you do is you have to go up to the toolbar and click add a set of parents. It opens a new dialogue. Then you can enter in the mother and the father. Or if you did what I did, which was enter all the people into the people's tab to begin with, then you can link the mother and the father. Um, but the, the reason I say the reason what threw me for a loop with entering everybody in the people's tab was... I didn't really have a way of keeping track of, well, did I put this person's mom in or that person's dad in it? If you do it through the relationships tab, that just seems to work a little bit better. Anyway, once you get all the information entered and the various different people that you want entered in, entered into the system, um, it, then it, it, it does some more powerful things. So it has the ability to uh, document everything. And one of the things I really liked about Gramps was it doesn't require any information. There is no fields that are required. So some people, all I had was a first name to begin with. I just couldn't remember off the top of my head. I knew that person, you know, at, at this particular side of the family had this particular name. I didn't really remember much about them. I knew I could get the information, just didn't have it right then. Doesn't matter. Uh, as far as dates go, same thing. You don't have to know somebody's birth date. You don't have to know somebody's death date. In fact, all of the events can be entered completely secondary to the people in the relationships. And so if all you're trying to do is just kind of start with kind of a, a general outline of this is kind of what my family is and then go back and add some of that information, it offers you the opportunity to do that. Again, none of the parameters being required. By default, I have found their, uh, their, their application defaults to be very, very sane. So for example, when you go to add an event, it defaults the first event to being birth, the second one to being death, and the third to being burial. Well, guess what? As I started to do my search, what I found was I had about three dates for everybody or two dates or one date. And in order, if I only had one date, it was the year they were born. If I only had two dates, it was the date that they were born, the date that they died. And if I happen to have three dates, 
It was the date that they were born, date they died, and date they're buried. Going back to none of the parameters being required, by the way, it doesn't require a full date. And so if you just have a year, it puts that year, and it does it formats it such that it doesn't look weird when you have 15 people that all have month, day, year, and then you have a couple people with just the year. Um, the formatting and presentation of it is absolutely fantastic. And once you have that data entered, this is where the power of this software really blows out of the water anything that I could have ever done in Inkscape or a Word doc or an Excel, you know, a Calc doc, whatever, uh, is you can start to generate reports and you can start to make correlations and you can start to generate um, other sorts of output based on that data. And so by default, uh, Gramps has little applets that you can add um, to the dashboard. And so when I have, you know, I've added uh, a Gramplet, I think is what they call it. And I added the record Gramplet. And as I've been entering information over the past week, it's been fun to watch that grow because it tells me who the person is that died at the youngest age, who the person is that lived the oldest, the youngest mother, the oldest father, um, all of those kinds of metrics that you could collect, you can start to understand. It also then tabulates surnames and tells you what percentage of your family came from one particular surname or another particular surname. And then as you click into various different people, it will tell you what the common ancestor is to any two individuals. And that has, you know, it's done a lot to be able to tell me these are the important people as it relates to your ancestry, these are the people that you share, you know, all of this in common with. And there's people all over the world, and they're all tied back to this one individual. And so to be able to see all that and and calculate all of that is fantastic. And from there, you can begin to generate, again, various different kinds of output. And so you can generate a traditional family tree. Now, interestingly enough, the software developers of Gramps have, you can just tell, these guys have gone through great lengths to make absolutely sure there is no such thing as data lock-in. You can export as a comma-separated value, a GEDCOM, which I've come to understand is a very common standard for uh, genealogical research, GeneWeb, which is a you know, web-based version. The default is Gramps X, uh, XML. Uh, then there is the web family tree, vCalendar, or vCard. And so all of those options, you know, allow you to get your data in and out of it. When I went to export the my like the uh, the 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 graphical representation of my family tree, which you might think of as a little box with little lines coming down showing the ancestry lines. As I went to export that, I noticed, you know, the default option I think is is a PDF, but one of the other options was SVG. Well, that was really fantastic because I had started trying to make an SVG, the idea being I thought it would be a very universal, very scalable format. I can just make the canvas bigger when I need to add more stuff, and it's always editable, and uh, there'll be a number of pieces of software that will be available to edit it. So it seemed like a very good standard to begin with. Again, ran into limitations within the first four hours of doing this. Uh, with Gramps, it allows me to export back to an SVG. So after entering all that information, five seconds, I can generate the exact kind of family tree style SVG that I originally started with, except far more accurate. And as I continue to enter information, regenerating that SVG is just two clicks away. It also allows you to generate uh, SVGs bait or, well, output based on any particular family. So, uh, you know, my kids came in and they started to get a kind of interested in it and they clicked on their name and generated their family tree. And then my mother got interested. And so we generated her one. And so that kind of that ability to generate data based off of all the stuff, this stuff that's collected in, in a, in a local database was just fantastic. 
Um, and there are a number of tools that are packed into Gramps as well. Family lines, so you can do a complete relationship graph, uh, which shows everybody in the database and how they are co uh, how they are connected to one another. People that are not connected, obviously, being at the very top, um, because that is the start of their tree. Uh, and as you create connections and as you figure out where those connections go, you can see them in real time build, and it is just fascinating. Got done with my family and started on my wife's family. And, and so kind of to watch that build out has just been a really fantastic thing. And I was speaking to, I think it was my wife's mother. And I said, you know, I'm doing this thing and I've, I've just kind of gotten this kick and doing it with the kids and just kind of a fun thing. We're entering this. And she goes, oh, well, my, uh, you know, my uncle or whatever wrote a book on our family. And so he has a book if you'd like to, to look at it. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. So I took the book. And take all the information and, and ingest it into Gramps. And when I got done, I thought, you know, what a cool idea that there's a family book that has all the ancestry lines. Well, guess what Gramps offers? Underneath their report generation, one of the things you can do is generate a book. And it will print everything to graphs, to calendars, showing where everybody's birth date is, and, and all of these kinds of things. Again, dynamically generated right from the raw data inside of the software. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and, they, and, you know, again, it's not just calculating people and their names. It has contact information. It has the ability to upload media like PDF reports, newspaper clippings, photos. It has the ability to organize into family units. So when you have, you know, two people that got together, they had some kids, then they got divorced or they separated or whatever the story is, and then they got married to somebody else, and then their stepdad's involved and stepmom's involved and all sorts of things. Gramps accommodates all of it. I mean, there's a way to connect any two people in any two which ways you might think of even more than once. And it just creates a separate family unit for every two people that started a family, essentially. And once you get done with that, then you can start playing with things like the relationship calculator, where you can choose any two people and it will tell you what the relationship is. So that, you know, seventh cousin you know, six times removed or whatever, uh, whatever the whatever the 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 name for those things are, you're able to find that out because the software has all of that built in. and uh, and so when you create these events, you can tie people to events. So if there's a birth of a of a of a given person, you can tie it to both parents. You can tie that event to somebody else who's maybe a, a godparent or something like that. And then it has the ability to cite all of the sources. And so one of the things that I'm learning is as I'm going through, you know, the information that you're always going to get when you're doing this kind of research is only going to be as good as the source giving it to you. And so one of the things that's very important, at least to me, is to verify the authenticity of it. And so I'm including copies of all of the newspaper articles. It's great that, you know, in 2020 now, most places publish obituaries on their website. And so if you go into a funeral home or something like that, you can go in and get the uh, the the online version of that obituary, and I'm saving all of those and ingesting that into Gramps. And so if anybody ever goes back and says, you know, where did he get that date? Well, guess what? Inside of the citations for that person, you'll be able to see, oh, he pulled it off the newspaper article that came out in, you know, 2005, and that, that that's, that's where he got that thing. So I, I guess it's as accurate as whoever wrote that obituary. And then you can kind of backtrace and kind of figure that out and then see if you have conflicting information which one appears to be more accurate. Um, so they, they have thought of everything. I mean, the things I, again, I walked into the software thinking this is way too complex. And as I've gotten in here, I've used pretty much every functionality built into it. And I've never once been like, well, I wonder if I can do this. And then the answer is no. Then the answer is you can do it. It is one of the best pieces of software I've ever used. And it's kind of weird talking that it's a 
genealogy app, and I would think that there would be other applications that would be this impressive to me, but the truth is, uh, it's a genealogy app. I mean, what can I say? Uh, all of the uh, all of this stuff uh, allows for uh, is is designed for long term, and you can tell. It runs its own little version of a of a database software. It's very easy to export, including the media, and has the ability to export again, like I say, in multiple different formats and in multiple different ways. And so, my plan is, as I continue to collect research and continue to figure out who I'm uh, related to on this earth. Uh, when I'm done with that, I will simply make three copies of it for my three kids and give them all a flash drive, each flash drive, and say, here, here's what I have so far. Go forth, and as you find more stuff, add it to your family trees. And now there is, again, one common way to do that. And so I just, I, I, I'm pretty impressed, uh, beyond pretty impressed. If you're looking for a, a an activity or something to do with your kids, I could not possibly recommend Stronger Go download Gramps and check it out. It's an absolutely fantastic piece of software. Again, open phones, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'll, we'll take your questions. We'll take your comments. That's the way to make your voice heard, become a part of the program. So we promised you the ultimate KDE desktop this week, and we are going to deliver. So Quick backstory, a couple of years ago, I, on a challenge, installed the KDE desktop. I installed the KDE desktop because my GNOME desktop crashed right in the middle of doing show prep about 45 minutes before I went on the air. And the way that GNOME is set up, the entire desktop process runs on a single processing thread. And the problem with that is, when anything in that thread crashes, the entire desktop crashes. And so, under X, it's not the end of the world because you kind of see that pop where the like everything kind of goes away and then the desktop kind of comes back but all your stuff is still there under wayland it's a little bit more severe what ends up happening is the the desktop actually entirely crashes and you'll lose a lot of your data and that happened enough times to me that i just threw my hands up and got sick of it wiped my laptop and uh installed kde neon and i did not anticipate leaving it on there for very long. A couple things about KDE Neon. It's not really, I, I, don't, I don't really understand what the, what, the, what the purpose of that desktop is because it's the KDE desktop on top of the Ubuntu base. And the best that I can make out, it really exists just to exemplify the KDE desktop. This is what KDE looks like. We have to put it on some sort of a base. We'll put that on top of Ubuntu. And the issue that I took with it was I am not a rolling person. I do not agree with the premise that things need to be uh, rolling and up to date in order to be functional. I really believe that we are better served as a technical community to not have moving goalposts, to, to put something down in the sand and say, here's, here's what we're aiming for. Now, everybody focus on this target. And when we hit that target every single time until we all decide that it's time to set the target further down. Uh, and then we all aim for that next target. The idea that we should just continually move the target as fast as, as fast as possible down the field and everybody should just kind of get on board as, as trying to chase this moving target, I, I think is a, uh, is a silly way to operate. And, and quite frankly, you know, some of the issues that I've seen inside of, well, KDE Neon for one, but Arch is another one, um, it, it's just not for me. If that, those are the kind of problems you want to solve, more power to you. It's just not the way I want to use my computer. I want to sit down. I want to know that it's going to work every single time, 100%, same way it did yesterday. Um, and so I, I ran KDE Neon 
for so long and it ran for so long that when the computer restarted, it wasn't due to the KDE crashing by any stretch of the imagination. It was because the battery actually died. Uh, I couldn't remember the encryption password. Again, never set it up as a permanent desktop. I was just going to use it for a little bit, uh, and then I was going to dump it after a day or two. So fast forward three, four months down the road, I had no idea what that encryption password was. Ended up reinstalling with Kubuntu and have not touched my laptop since. I have been so happy with the Kubuntu installation and the stability and the usability that I've gotten out of it and the flexibility that I've gotten out of it, you will pry the KDE desktop from my cold dead fingers. That's how that's what it would take for me to move off of KDE at this point. I've tried them all. I've tried XFCE. I've tried tiling window managers. I've tried GNOME. I've tried Unity. I, I mean, you name it, I've tried it. And I, I feel like I can defend this position fairly well. There is no better desktop than KDE Plasma. Couple things. KDE Plasma is a desktop-focused system. Yes, there is KDE Plasma Mobile, and yes, there is touchscreen integration because many laptops and many, you know, they, they're trying to accommodate as large of an audience as they can. But by and large, you can tell when you sit down, you feel like you're at a desktop. And I don't know, maybe this is me being dated. Maybe this is me growing up on Windows 98 and, and Windows 2000 and wanting everything, icon, launching icons right on the desktop, not in some stupid cascading window thing, not on some dock someplace. I just like icons on the desktop that I can double click and it runs. But KDE functions that way, or at least it can function that way. One of the things that you'll find out about KDE is you use it. The answer to can I do that? is almost never no. The answer is almost always, yes, you can do that. And more often than not, the answer is, yes, you can do that. And by the way, that's built in by default. You don't have to add anything. You don't have to tweak anything. You don't have to do anything. Second thing you should understand, the KDE desktop is much, much lighter than you'd expect it to be. When I first ran it, I put it on par with GNOME. Um, and I ran it on the same hardware that I ran on GNOME, and unsurprisingly, it ran just as well as GNOME did. In fact, better. And as I started to progress, I started to look and say, okay, I wonder what the least hardware I could run this on. And installed it on a couple of Core 2 Duos, installed it on some 10-year-old machines, and it was flying. And I thought, man, these are machines I wouldn't have in a million years put GNOME, by the time I got done with all my extensions and stuff, I would have easily went to like a Lubuntu or an XFCE or a, an Ubuntu Mate, which is kind of my go-to for utility desktops these days. I put KDE on. I could not believe how fast KDE runs. And again, going back to the customizability of KDE, you can go in and turn off a bunch of the animations and a lot of the whiz-bang features that make KDE as polished as it is, which is something else you'll find out. This is a desktop that is very, very polished. One of the things that has always kind of drove me nuts about GNOME, you can get a good GNOME desktop. It just takes a lot of tweaking and a lot of time. And we did an episode on that a few years ago of all the things that you can do to GNOME to get it tweaked. And not that there aren't tweaks that you can do to KDE, and we're going to spend a significant amount of time going over them, but the truth is, right out of the box, KDE is pretty darn good. Uh, and in fact, and I'll get to this in a little bit, almost, I think all of the tweaks, and we'll go through if there's any, I'll tell you if otherwise, but I think all of the tweaks I'm going to go over today don't require anything, any sort of installation. You could do this from a co-boot installation. You could take a flash drive with Kubuntu 18.04 on it, you could plug it into a, a computer, 
you can install it and everything is baked into the desktop itself. If you never had an internet connection, you could still make all of these changes. And that says a lot because what it tells me as an end user is that the developers foresaw people making these changes. It's not some hacked together thing where one person makes one thing, one make person makes another thing, and then they don't work together. Oh, well, that's why. It's because this thing didn't talk to that or this thing wasn't aware of that. The developers had an end-to-end -end picture of what this desktop was going to look like. And just over time, they have continued to polish and tweak and polish and tweak and polish and tweak to the point that now it's a very polished desktop, no matter how you tweak it. I've uh, yeah, and again, I've I've not needed to install anything uh, to make this happen. So to start from a fresh KDE desktop, and I did this on an HP NV just for reference. Uh, started with a 1804, the latest 1805. I think it's 1804.3 on a flash installation drive. Plugged it in, did a clean install, and a couple of things. As I'm installing, I always choose LVM with encryption. I choose LVM with encryption. It has nothing to do with KDE, but if your laptop is ever stolen. Or, uh, or or taken from you or, or used without your consent, you want your data to be protected. And there's a number of different ways to do that. I know there's some people that are into Veracrypt. Uh, some people are into SpiderOak as far as just backing or just encrypting the backups. I like to have the entire hard drive encrypted because in today's day and age, the truth is no matter what we try to do with the way that modern file systems work, they are so centered on making sure that you don't lose data that they just, they write data to the most random weird places that you never think of. And that, that is just almost impossible to track or to, to, um, to try to anticipate. And so it makes scrubbing a drive and scrubbing sensitive data off of a drive next to impossible. So my preference is always to encrypt the entire drive from the get-go, and then you don't have to worry about those things. So I always choose LVM with encryption. I pick a long pass phrase. If you're not familiar with the pass phrase, uh, you should uh, check out KeyPassXC. It allows you to generate a pass phrase, uh, English-based words uh, that, that form a long sentence that is easy for the human mind to remember and very difficult for computers to crack. Uh, generate a long pass phrase, use LVM so you can expand or change it later, and go ahead and install Kubuntu. Once you get booted up into the Kubuntu desktop, first thing I change, I like dark themes. Uh, dark themes to me do a couple of things. First of all, I'm able to work longer on the computer because it's not as fatiguing to the eyes. I'm able to, if I have to wake up in the middle of the night and do something, again, much easier on my eyes than having a bright white light blasted at my, at my eyes in the middle of the night. Third thing it does, uh, I... I just think it looks more professional when I, when I go into when it, when you go into software the a, a lot of times there's some very powerful software gene, you cash comes to mind. Um, it doesn't look very great when you open it up the first time you apply a dark theme to even the most terrible looking software. And all of a sudden it looks like it's a million bucks. I don't know. There's something about dark themes that just look better to me. And so system settings breeze dark is the theme I'm using. Now here's why. I tried dark theme after dark theme on GNOME, and I would run into the weirdest issues. Like, I would go to PayPal, for example, and the text box for the username and password would be gray. And it was obviously trying to, you know, trying to implement the, 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 that portion of the dark theme. Well, when you'd go to type, for whatever reason, the text would also be that similar gray, so you couldn't see the text on the text box. And it was the most infuriating thing to the point that I just gave up on trying to get that dark theme to work. Breeze dark? 
does none of that. And so system settings, click on Breeze Dark, then go down to the next option down, which is desktop theme. Again, choose Breeze Dark. And then there's a third place you have to change down in colors, change to Breeze Dark. Now that will fix all of the Qt applications and everything that runs inside of KDE, but what it won't do is touch any of your GTK applications. Again, going back to not being just a hacked on thing, this is something the developers anticipated. If you go into the application style, click on GTK, guess what you have? An option for Breeze Dark for GTK applications. Now, in the case of Audacity, it was the only application I've run yet that has had an issue with the Breeze Dark, and it, it doesn't look quite right. And so what you have to do in Audacity specifically is go to Edit and then click on Preferences, go into the Interface, and, uh, or no, excuse me, um, I I I don't I didn't I didn't write it down, but there in inside of Audacity somewhere in the interface uh, menu there is a option to choose dark mode, and you'll want to choose uh, change the mode from light to dark, and that will fix it in and so that Audacity looks fantastic. It gives like this orange uh, orange color for the waveforms instead of the blue, and then the 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 dark gray matches the rest of the system theme. Absolutely fantastic. And once you have that, basically the entire desktop will go to a dark thing. Next thing I did was I tweaked Dolphin a little bit. So I changed the default view to be the detailed view because I don't like fat folders that take up so much space. I also right click and uh, in the toolbar settings chose to show the menu bar. So that will give you the file edit view, go tools settings, so on and so forth. And then from there, once you've clicked uh, the show menu bar, or you've pressed control M to get the menu bar to show. You can click on settings in the menu bar, click on configure dolphin and click on the view modes. That's where you can choose the icons. Then at the very bottom, uh, there's a general tab. I chose the use common properties for all folders. And what this will do is it will set it such that whatever changes you make to one folder, all of them will apply. Uh, now there may be a special uh, use case or circumstance where you may want different views for different folders. Quite frankly, this is one of the things where the defaults don't make a whole lot of sense to me. I would imagine the vast majority of people, if they want to see the detailed view in one folder, would like to see the detailed view in, the, in all folders. So you got to make sure to go in the general uh, tab and click use common properties for all folders. I also chose instead of natural sorting, I, I did a little bit of Googling. I couldn't really figure out what natural sorting, like what methodology it uses for natural sorting. All I can tell you is I could never find anything with it. So I clicked on alphabetical sorting. Uh, case insensitive, and so no matter what the well, no matter what the case is, uppercase or lowercase, it will just organize alphabetically, which is what I want. Um, and then from there, Dolphin is Dolphin is pretty good. Uh, a Dolphin, by the way, one of the most fantastic file managers out there. Um, the ability to do the split plane view when you're copying files or comparing files or sorting files, this I would almost describe as kind of a Mac OS esque thing. Uh, it will split the file fold or the uh, the file window into two windows, and so you can browse, you know, documents in one and and downloads in the other, and then copy back and forth all within one Dolphin window. And of course, you can make multiple Dolphin windows, but doing it all in in one where you've got that two 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 paned uh, window approach is kind of nice because if, then if you minimize the window or move it back up when you when you open the window back up, you get both of them. And so if you're in the middle of organizing files, which if you listen a couple of episodes ago where I talked about moving all of my data into one location, Dolphin has just been fantastic for that. A um, couple other settings I tweaked. Once I get Dolphin done, I went into the desktop behavior tab 
of the system settings menu and screen edges and turn them off. I'm not a fan of hot corners. I don't like the, the computer to think for me. I will tell the computer what I want it to do. And so when I move my mouse into a particular place and all of a sudden something starts happening, that it drives me nuts. So I shut off the hot corners. At the very minimum, I would tell you to go in there and set it. And so you know what the hot corners are doing and which corner is doing it. Um, but I would just shut them off. It, it works better for me. Other things I turned off is the dragging to drag into the corner to maximize. So by default in KDE, when you drag the the window to the very corner of the screen and let go, it's going to maximize that window. I can't think of a time where I would really want that to happen. If I wanted to maximize the window, I'll just double click on the window bar, uh, or I will click the uh, the the little maximize button. I don't really need to drag it to a specific portion of the screen. If I'm dragging it to the specific portion of the screen. It's just because I'm organizing my window layout, and when it takes up the whole screen, that kind of throws me for a loop. So I turn that off. I set my virtual desktops to four. I have done as much as eight. My workstation uh, in my basement has eight virtual desktops, and I changed the switching to the cube. And so if you remember uh, back in the good old days of Linux where you had the spinning cube, yeah, KDE still has that. And what can I say? I'm a sucker for... Uh, for that uh, for that vintage style retro thing, I, I just like it. And so, turned on the cube. I think it's kind of cool. It also is an attention getter. Every time I go into a client and I go to switch over to a specific workspace, my 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 cube starts spinning around. Oh, that's really cool. How did you do that? Well, that's just a feature in my desktop. Thank you very much. Uh, activities, activities is one of the coolest thing, and 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 quite frankly, is one of the features that puts KDE in a category that no other desktop can compete for me personally. Prior to having access to activities, here was my process. I had two partitions on my hard drive. I had a work partition and a personal partition. And the idea was that I could boot between them. And what I what I started doing at the I don't know, end of last year, maybe a little bit before that, I started using activities. And I have since found some limitations with them that have made me kind of want to go back to dual uh, dual booting a a work side and personal side. But uh it's a pretty good interim solution. And here's the way activities work. You can specify almost as if there was a second installation of the operating system. Not quite, but close. Uh, you can specify what applications are able to run in that activity. You're able to specify a different desktop background so you know which activity you're on. You can have different icons on that desktop activity. Your running documents or running applications do not cross activities. So for example, in the virtual desktop space, and I run into this when I have eight virtual desktops, if I have Firefox running in the uh, in on desktop virtual space one, and I am on virtual workspace, let's say five, and I open KRunner and I run, uh, you know, uh, Firefox, and it takes me, you know, the default search is going to take me to open available Firefox windows. If I inadvertently click one of those instead of going down to a new Firefox browser, it spins my de virtual be desktop back to desktop number two. Now that's fine if you're just multitasking and using that for the purpose of multitasking. The problem is if you have personal documents and personal items pulled up on your personal side of your, your you know, if you're using a virtual desktop, for example, on one of those, you go to a client and now all of a sudden, you know, baby pictures start popping up or whatever. That's kind of weird. If with activities, the nice thing is it basically separates the two. If Firefox can be running, Dolphin can be running, Word documents can be open in the personal activity. When you go over to the work activity, it's as if none of those are running. Now, of course, they're still going to occupy RAM and so, so on and so forth, uh, but it, you, you won't accidentally switch back to it unless you intentionally go back to that activity. 
Um, and there is, I wouldn't call them security features, but for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them security features. It allows you to restrict uh, what applications or what things can run in an activity. We'll get to that with KDE window rules in a second, but they're specific to that particular KDE activity. And so I have a, a work one, a personal one, an Ask Noah one, and a testing one. And that just allows me to use my, my laptop for various different things. And setting the wallpaper to to various different things allows me to, when I get to work, if I don't see the AltaSpeed logo, I know I'm on the wrong activity and I can switch. And then I can prevent certain notifications. I can prevent certain applications. Uh, you know, All of those things become available to me. And once you embrace the concept of activities, there's no going back. And the problem with, the, with, the problem with that is you're literally stuck on KDE for life uh, because no other desktop, to my understanding, implements this the same way power management um, again under the desk or uh, under the uh, system settings menu desktop uh, uh, system settings desktop behavior power management turn off dim screen and turn off uh, the the screen switching off uh, I have sometimes left it on 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 certain laptops for my desktop for sure if I want the screen to shut off I will just lock the screen and wait for the the timeout to 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 kill the the uh, the screen lock, and then the screen will shut off that way. I do not want uh, my laptop to go to sleep in on its own. I'm copying files. I am in the middle of doing something. If I'm jotting notes and I look away for a couple minutes while I'm working on a server, I don't want to look back at my laptop to write down a password or look something up, and all of a sudden, oh shoot, it fell asleep. No, 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 no. I will tell you what to do. I don't want you making decisions for me. Now let's talk about KDE window rules. Again, one of the things that just doesn't exist with other desktop operating systems and is fantastic. So what KDE window rules are, are specifications in which the KDE desktop will follow when you run specific applications that meet certain criteria. So you start most of the time by identifying a window class. Now, window class, if you open a, a window up, uh, you open an application, you open something, you'll see it says, you know, if I open Dolphin, for example, it says home, which is the directory I'm in, and then it says dash Dolphin, and so of course, the window class would be Dolphin. The same thing, you know, in Firefox, if you open up a website, if I went to asknoahshow.com, uh, it's going to show up at the top, it'll say uh, asknoah-mozilla Firefox. And so I can match Mozilla Firefox or I could match asknoah-mozilla Firefox, right? I could tell it when I go to this specific site, I want you to match uh, the window class and not just any Firefox window. Where that may be advantageous, we have OS ticket. That's what we run our ticketing system on. And that's one of the things I always have up when I'm at work. And so the ability to tell my desktop environment, hey, when I run, when I visit this specific site, I want the window to be in this specific location and I want it to be this specific height and this specific width and, and so on and so forth. Now, you can do a couple of different things. You can say that the window class is unimportant. In other words, just match anything. An exact match, only match exactly what I'm going to type. A substring match, match any part of this. Uh, or a regular expression, so it'll support regex right inside of the KDE window rules. Now, once you have a match, what would you like to do with the window? And this is where you can get kind of carried away. You can specify the size and position. You can specify how far it maximizes horizontally, how far it maximizes vertically. The particular activity, again, circling back to the security feature that's not really a security feature, I can specify that you know this particular window, uh, this particular window configuration only occurs in this particular activity and not any other one. You can assign it to a specific screen. I have six screens down on my KDE workstation, down in my basement at home. 
It's really nice when I open Thunderbird that it always opens in a very specific place on a very specific screen. The initial placement, where does it go? Uh, keep above and below. This is remarkably useful. When I have Telegram open, it's because I'm actively talking with somebody. And so when I go to a website that has some stupid pop-up or some stupid window that comes up or these modern things that have like the, their own little chat thing, bubble thing that pops out, I don't want that to steal my focus uh, at, while I'm in the middle of writing a message. And so I can tell Katie Windrose, hey, always keep this thing on top. Even better. There's an option to prevent stealing focus. So if I have a window in focus uh, and something else pops up, nothing can ever take the focus away from that particular uh, that particular window. And so you can specify that as a KDE window rule. You can create a shortcut so that when you run a, a specific shortcut, it matches a particular KDE window rule and follows a specific action. You can change a particular window to a particular theme. I've done this a couple of times. There, there are certain applications that just don't work well uh, with the dark theme, not many, but some, uh, and this allows you to say, Hey, when this particular application runs or this particular window runs, go ahead and ignore my, the, the, uh, the system default theming, go ahead and apply a specific theme to it. You can change the opacity. One of the things I've never been able to do. And if anybody out there can help me with this, I would love to hear this at live at asknoahshow.com. I like to, I never, I'm not a person that sits down and watches TV. I'm not a person that sits down and watches movies. I like to work on my computer, but what, and, and by work, I mean, you know, do whether that's actual ultra speed technical work or that's just working with genealogy stuff, whatever. Um, and so the way that I consume movies and or TV shows is I put them on in the background and then I, and then I goof around on my laptop and uh, what I've always, what I've always kind of wanted to do and never found a way that I could do this is I wish I could have a movie playing full screen, uh, with some opacity to it so I could see through the movie and what I want is I don't want when I click, I want to click underneath the movie. I want the, the movie to be playing. I want to see it. And then I want to see through the movie. And so I can work underneath it in my file browser. That way, any of the things that I want to pay attention to in the movie, I can. And then when I want to ignore it and pay attention to the, uh, the, uh, the window behind it, then I can. Uh, right now, what I do is I just put it kind of in the corner uh, and watch it out of the corner of my eye. Problem with doing that, of course, is it the, you know, corner of the screen is not really designed for a, a 16 by 9 aspect ratio. So if anybody has, I, I don't think it's possible, but if anybody has a way to do that, I'd love to hear. Uh, it, it, but if I, if I can do that though, uh, what you can do is change the opacity of things like the file window so I can see through it to see the movie that's playing behind, uh, which is something I've, which is something I've done. And one of the things I have set up as a KDE window rule, um, launching applications. And this goes back to what I was talking about when I say, the KDE desktop is really built with redundancy in mind. There's not, there's never, almost never just one way to do something. And what that does is it prevents you from having to restart the computer or even log out and log back in because something is locked up or not working correctly. And so there's the plasma search at the top, which you can get by pressing alt and then the space bar. And so you could type alt space bar you know, Firefox or fire and press enter and Firefox will run. That's one way to open Firefox. Of course, you can always click on it on the, the desktop icon on the, on the desktop, or you can tap the meta key also known as the windows key and type Firefox that way and you can run it. So there's multiple different ways to get Firefox to open. And I have had it happen where my desktop environment where the, the, the KDE desktop locks up itself, but guess what's still running? Plasma search is still running. So I can hit alt space and get an application open, go back to what I was doing until it unscrews itself. And I, I would have to tell you 
that in, I don't know how long it's been now, two years, maybe three, of using plasma, never once has it ever not been able to recover. It takes a little bit sometimes. Sometimes I have to crawl in and kill a process, but 100% of the time it recovers on its own if I just leave it long enough. Uh, so that's pretty cool. The launcher at the bottom, one of the most customizable things, again, doesn't seem to exist on any other operating system. In GNOME, for, in GNOME, for example, you know, you can add a, a third-party, like, latte dock or something, but no, GNOME isn't really aware of the fact that you no longer want to use their launcher and want to use latte dock, and so then you essentially have two. Um, and so it's not, I wouldn't call that a smooth experience. It's okay. It works. Uh, not my favorite. With KDE, you right-click on, uh, on the menu system and click on Alternatives, and there you'll have an opportunity to choose the application dashboard, the application launcher, or the application menu. Now, the application menu functions about how you would expect a Windows 98, uh, Windows 2000 era menu, where you have menus and submenus and submenus. Uh, the application launcher is, I believe, the default and functions a lot like the Windows 10 uh, menu, where you've got uh, categories, essentially, and then you search. And then there's my favorite, which is the application launcher. Now, the application launcher reminds me a lot of the... GNOME uh, launcher, it takes over the whole screen, has a, a nice little opacity that shows uh, what's underneath, and by default, you're entered into the search, and so you can just start typing Firefox, documents, whatever, it will search the system, and then it'll go ahead and launch whatever it is you choose. Over to the left, you have the opportunity to pin your most frequently used applications, and so if there's something that you launch all the time or want all the time, those are pinned in your favorites. And then, of course, if you want to drill down and start searching, there is recent applications, recent documents, all applications, development, education, so on and so forth. They have categories. When you place your mouse over each one of these categories, it will then tell you what applications match uh, or fit that, that given category. And that category selection is over at the right. So I have, and I know there's some disagreements between myself and some of the other people that are using KDE, but I really believe uh, that this application dashboard is one of the best launchers out there. And then aside from the apps and docs, you have the opportunity to click on widgets and then you can create widgets on your desktop. And we'll get to widgets next. Widgets are essentially small little applications that run all the time on the desktop. And the, if you don't know anything else about KDE, probably what you have heard or have heard people talk about is widgets. And the reason for that is because, again, there's not a lot of other desktops that do these kinds of things. So you can create an analog clock widget, and it's just a little thing that floats on the desktop that shows an analog clock, but it can get much more advanced. Uh, one of the things I have on my workstation, I have a workstation that is mounted um, to my bed. And so it, it's on a, uh, the monitor and the keyboard and the mouse are on like a swinging arm. And so when I, if I, if I have an emergency in the middle of the night, uh, or, you know, if I wake up, you know, and check in my email and stuff like that, I just, I swing it over and, and I can use it. Um, one of the things that's on there is the Volumio control panel. And so if in the middle of the night, if I fall asleep listening to music and I wake up in the middle of the night and go, that's distracting me, I can swing that monitor arm over and I don't have to open up Firefox or browse to anyth anything. I just, right there on the KDE desktop, there's a Plasma widget that has Volumio embedded in it, and I can just click on pause or set the sleep timer and let it run for another 30 minutes and fall asleep. Uh, there are there are things that you can create to, uh, uh, widgets that you can create that will uh, cycle pictures. So I had, for a, for a time being, I had uh, pictures of my kids 
that would cycle on my plasma desktop. And so it was like a picture frame that showed a random picture and it would cycle every five to 10 seconds of, of, of my kids. And then eventually included my wife and all that. Um, you can start to customize what your desktop is doing. And to me, this again starts to reclaim uh, desktop real estate, because one of the things that has always bothered me about computers in general is, you know, if you put all this time into menu systems and application launchers and stuff like that, and we don't pay any attention to how to efficiently use the largest portion of desktop real estate we have, which is the desktop. I log into my laptop. I'm looking at the desktop. I close all my windows. I'm looking at the desktop. I'm done, not doing anything. And I need to start a project. I'm looking at the desktop. There's a lot of real estate there that can be more efficiently used. And I think that KDE is one of the only desktop environments that allow you to do that. And so if you add a widget, you can, again, you can add it. You can add the, uh, you can add a clock. You can add an activity pager. So you can choose which activity you'd like to work or an activity bar. Um, because again, there's really never a no in KDE. You have the opportunity to add uh, multiple application launchers. So you can have one that's a menu system, one that's the application launcher, one that's the application dashboard. You can add an audio volume widget. Uh, there's a binary clock that my son has kind of gotten into. It'll display the time in binary. Uh, there's a clipboard manager. That's the other thing. The clipboard manager, even if you can add that as a widget, but even if you don't, the clipboard manager shows up at the very bottom of the screen right next to the um, the sound icon. And one of the things that's nice about the clipboard manager is it keeps a history of everything you've copied into your clipboard. How many times have you copied a URL and then you go into an application to, to paste, or no, you copy the contents of a web page and you're going to go paste it somewhere. And then you realize you wanted the URL as well. And, you know, if it's if you're creating like a wiki article based off of it, then you would need to put the title in first before you can paste the contents. So now you got to go back and copy the URL or the title. And then you paste that. Now you realize, oh, now I got to go back and get the original contents that I already had. Well, with KDE, you can go into the clipboard manager and just go pull the previous contents right out of the uh, right out of the clipboard manager. Unlike GNOME, they still believe that the task manager and the taskbar is a useful place for notifications. So all of your notifications come up on one place. There is the notifications tab, which is a little eye down at the taskbar, and you can click on that and it will show you all of the previous notifications. Guess where your file transfers show up? In the notifications. That singular place, rather than in GNOME where it's in a uh, it's in the the file window itself up in the corner, rather in uh, you know, just a a Ubuntu uh, Unity where there was a se separate window that was open and that the you had to leave this dialogue open watching the stupid progress bar run. None of that in KDE. It all runs inside of the information notification bar. So you just click on that and it will show you how many file transfers are occurring. You can pause them, stop them, cancel them, uh, or when they're complete, you'll get a little bell notification that will pop up and tell you that it's done. So. Stuff like that, where I only have one place to look and I can kind of train myself anytime I want information about what my system is doing, go ahead and check that out. That's the kind of stuff that makes my use of the desktop more efficient. Um, and finally, uh, some window management techniques. So Alt-Right-Click uh, will allow you to resize so you don't have to care about where the screen edges are. That one comes from Michael Tunnell. Uh, a great tip and a great way, again, to improve efficiency of using the computer. How many times have you hunted for those stupid little uh, resizing arrows so that you can you can make the window the size that you want? You have the ability to use control, scroll up or scroll down to zoom into Firefox. Many of you have used that. 
But what your desktop probably doesn't have is meta plus and minus. And meta plus and minus, you hold the meta key or the Windows start key and press the minus or, uh, or plus uh, keys. And what will happen is the desktop will zoom in or out based on where your cursor is. And uh, lastly, I'll just wrap up with a couple of things, uh, some must-have apps. So everything in there that we've talked about thus far, you do not have to do any, you don't even have to have an internet connection to make that work, okay? Anybody can do that just by installing the latest version of Ubuntu 18.04 with the KDE desktop. But there are some applications that I just couldn't live without, and I would be remiss if we didn't at least mention them in the show notes. So the first one is Yakwake. And Yakwick is a drop-down uh, terminal uh, for the KDE desktop. And, and what I particularly like about it is uh, it, uh, it, it does support transparency, and so it's opaque when I drop it down. Uh, I've assigned it to the tilde key, and so anytime I need a terminal for something, I just I hit the tilde key, I do whatever I'm going to do, I hit the tilde key, and it goes back away. And for somebody that lives most of his life inside of an SSH terminal, uh, that's absolutely fantastic. And the last one, which is about to be replaced because as we announced last week, there's a new uh, version of KDE out, which is going to include this by default, not, not this particular software, but they have their own version of it. But if you don't, if you, if you don't have the latest version of KDE, you'll want Redshift. Redshift is going to take the things that don't support dark themes like white windows, and it's going to give them a little bit of an orange or yellowish tint to kind of ease up uh, what your eyes have to have to see. So uh, check all of those out. We'll have all of those documented for you in the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com as well as we will document them in the Linux Delta Wiki. Go to wiki.linuxdelta.com and search for the Ultimate KDE Desktop to learn more. Feedback this week, Bill writes in and says, Hey Noah, great show. Thanks for doing it. When you talk about Sailfish OS and Ubuntu Touch and other Linux on mobile phone choices, the main thing I want to know is which Android apps will work on it. I assume because of limited screen size and tie-ins to Google Play services and touchscreen access, some people will be using a lot of mobile apps that, on these devices. Will these apps work? Is it possible that the only certain categories of apps won't work, though using anti-cheat through DRM, for example, or they will probably work? Thanks, Bill. So the answer to that question is basically this. Uh, most of the alternative operating systems out there include a way to install Google Play service. I can tell you for sure that Sailfish OS does. And so you can install uh, Android apps if you want to, to include Google Play services, and you can install a Google Play store, and then you can install uh, Android apps. Nothing's stopping you from doing that. Um, the only problem is going to be a lot of the advantages and the reasons that we go to things like Sailfish OS kind of go out the window if you, if you install Google Play services and some of those Android apps. But for example, my banking app, did not work on Selfish OS out of the box, so I had to use, um, I had to use a the uh, the Google Play Store to get my my banking app on there. So yeah, they'll work. Uh, most of them have. I haven't found one that that just flat out won't work. Um, but then again, I, you know, I, I I'm not one of those people that has a million apps. I kind of use my phone for staying in contact and making phone calls. Second email comes in from Scuba Steve. Says, hey, Noah, knowing that you deploy a lot of Unify gear, I'm wondering how you handle and set up Discovery in a multi-VLAN environment. If you have a controller on VLAN 10, for example, how do you ensure that the controller discovers the Unify devices, switches and access points, and the devices get assigned an IP address on VLAN 10, being that they're on Linux tr or on trunk ports? I've managed to get everything else on my network configured for VLANs, but I'm stuck on my Unify devices on VLAN 1. Can you help me out? Thanks. Love the show and listen every week on my commute to work. 
Scuba Steve. So the answer is this. The way to do VLANs properly in the Unify system, you're right. By default, it's every port is going to be a trunk port, and so every other Unify device will have access to every VLAN. Uh, if you want to specify out a specific VLAN inside of the access points, for example, you can specify an SSID to only be on VLAN 10, for example, and then that SSID will only talk to VLAN 10. As far as discovery of devices, as long as the, the controller and the and all the other devices are on the same VLAN or plugged into the same switch, they're going to discover each other. Uh, if that doesn't work for any reason, the other way you can get around that is you can create a manual DNS entry that resolves the host name Unify to the IP address of your controller. If that doesn't answer your question, you may be back next week. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week.